Another brace of LegCo candidates on perspective with Brian Brumby, former president of the Manx National Farmers Union, up first, followed by semi-retired engineer Gary Clewart. Both candidates speak with passion, but are they capable of providing the scrutiny, support and leadership the island needs to solve the problems we're facing? Brian Brumby, tell us a bit about yourself. I'm currently uh, farming at Balaklingham Farm, uh, just outside Ramsey in Lazare. Been there for the last 25 years. Um, The people, general people out there, will probably know us better as Silly Moose Campsite and uh, the Silly Moose Attractions. So I'm originally, well, non-Manx, originally from the UK, left school at 16 uh, with 5.0 levels and proceeded to follow a career in agriculture that included four years of self-funding through agricultural colleges to get the right qualifications and moving around the UK different jobs with more responsibility uh, as I went and eventually ended up in Devon uh, for nine years managing a, one of the largest units in the UK at the time with 700 head. And there was a dairy or beef? That, 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 up to that point it was all dairy. Okay. So uh, yeah, many, many 70, 80 hour weeks go, go into that and uh, all weathers, etc. So... T- as I said, nine years in Devon, and then my wife and I, we started looking for opportunities to start our own business. At the time, there was a wonderful thing uh, called milk quotas attached with the EU, and that is basically paying money to get a license to, to produce milk. The Isle of Man wasn't in the UK, and that didn't apply, and I noticed that there was a farm. Uh, came up on a share farming opportunity on the island, that that being Ballaclingham Farm. We applied for it and got that. And the beauty of it was we, you know, limited amount of capital we had at that stage could all be invested into stock and machinery rather than buying this licence to produce milk. So that's basically how we ended up on the Isle of Man. We continued doing the... Uh, dairy side for 15 years on the island, partook in all the shows, etc. We had a passion to get to the top of our profession. We were importing embryos from all over the world and we were selling stock. We, we had at one point the UK's highest indexing animal on the farm and uh, we sold stock to Holland, Germany, France, Spain, and Ireland, among other places. So you've, it's certainly fair to say you've had plenty of uh, life experiences then in, in, in relation to the, the work you've been doing. Yeah, and, and that, that so far took, took us up to 10 years ago, where we had a change of plan or a change of policy in conjunction with the farm owner and we changed from dairy into beef um, and that gave us the opportunity then to develop uh, two other businesses which was Silly Moose Campsite and the Silly Moose Attractions and they, they both started from small beginnings and 
to be honest, it's taken us a little bit by surprise on how successful and how well they've gone. And yeah, if you'd have told me when I was a 20-year-old in agricultural college that I would end up in the Isle of Man running a campsite, I would never have believed it. But that that's where life's taken us. And yeah, it's been a very good experience. And and I suppose people listening uh, may may well be thinking, how, how is it that someone who is effectively or has been brought up as a food producer is now running a campsite? Uh, diversification on farms is, is a big issue. Farming profits, we weren't making the profits that we would like to uh, for our future in buying property and pension-wise, etc., so, yes, we're looking for other opportunities. Um, we are on the TT course, so a campsite was a possibility all the way along. But we probably tackled it different to what other people would, because um, Fiona and myself have never been camping as such. But what we did was take a blank bit of paper and put down, if I did go camping, what would I need? And so, yeah, showers that you're not queuing for for hours that have hot water 24-7, clean, clean toilets, uh, Wi-Fi, free tea and coffee. Uh, we've got an indoor shed as a social area. We put entertainment on there during TT with bands, etc. And, uh, and that's as it's grown, etc. And that's what we've delivered. And... Uh, been very successful. We are, we have a very high rebooking rate, and was been turning people away because we've been full for this year's TT since October of last year. And I suppose uh, in that role, uh, you must get to hear uh, a, a wide range of of people's views and and opinions. Yeah, uh, it's broadened my horizons tremendously. The campsite and the Silly Moose attractions, which includes the Dark Horse Music Festival and planning weddings for people. And it brings me, brings me into contact with thousands of different people a year, all the way from landed gentry down to strange men who live in sheds at the bottom of the garden all year <laughs> and come out for the Manx Grand Prix. And it also has brought us in contact from people virtually every country of the world as well and they all come with a different viewpoint and a different opinion and and that's talking to them and yeah has been very valuable on uh, the debating side and I, I even had a debate with some Germans one year who were wishing they were doing the Brexit or German exit whatever oh. the abbreviation would be Saying so we were all doing the right thing, and uh, I, I was unsure at the time, and I'm, I probably still am. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in in relation to all this, then, uh, as as part of your uh, farming career, you've also had a role to play with the leadership of the Manx National Farmers Union, which is the main uh, lobbying body for Manx agriculture. Uh, that would have brought you into contact with government and, and that hasn't put you off uh, deciding no, to stand for LegCo? No, no, not at all. Um, I've always been politically interested. Um, agriculture plus the other business developments has never been a huge amount of time so I'm 
my political interest have been through the Manx National Farmers Union. Uh, I've been involved in that right from moving to the island, uh, firstly attending branch meetings and then gradually moving up. And eventually I spent six years as a president of the union. Uh, as, you, as you rightly say, yes, brought us into contact with government and scrutinising government policy, challenging that policy, also bringing forward ideas for frameworks for future policy. And yes, as president of the National Farmers Union, um, you say you're the leader of the union, which yes, you are, but you're more the, the voice piece for the union because everything, there's three branches throughout the island, uh, monthly meetings attended for the vast majority of those. There's four, 400 members, which again is probably 399 different opinions. And you don't stay as leader of that for six years unless you are listening, debating and taking the majority with you. It's it's not a dictatorship where, you know, as a leader as such, it is more of a mouthpiece. So, so you obviously, uh, you, you've had political experience. Uh, what, what motivates you to actually stand um, for this uh, uh, Legislative Council election? Right. Well, in another s- six months, uh, my term at Ballaclingham Farm comes to an end and we're we won't be extending now because I'm, I'm 64 now. I'm not going to extend for another 25-year period or something like that. So, yeah, having lived on this island for 25 years and very, very much call it home now and, th- and think it's a wonderful place with a lot to offer and whatever I can put back into the system, if you like, and through the MLC legislation and getting that right so that it's workable for the island and the island can go on and prosper and thrive. Yeah, that's the angle that I'm coming from. And you, I mean, you, you clearly have a passion for agricultural politics. Uh, you, you've never thought about standing for the House of Keys. Uh, I've, I've been thought about it and I've been asked several times, but other business commitments were taking priority at the time. So, no, there wasn't time or the place to step out of all the business commitments to do that. So I channeled everything through the Manx Farmers Union and politically that way. But I don't want to come across as just standing as MLC for an agricultural viewpoint. Um, I have this background as well in hospitality and tourism. I done work on the environment. In fact, at the start of the last administration, uh, DEFA came forward with a heady scheme proposal, which as a union we rejected and I brought forward as a counter proposal what is n- now developed into the agri-environment scheme. So, yeah, so there's an environment aspect there. Green energy, I've researched a lot on being champion agriculture's potential role in green energy production and what it could do for the island and that has also developed now into one of the few industries that can actually sequester carbon as well 
Um, and I started getting involved in that, and it was back in, yeah, 12, 13, 14 years ago. And the administration at the time, which I believe you were part of, Phil, had a carbon reduction target of 15% by 2015. And that, um, so I started, yeah, looking for the opportunities, what can work in agriculture get involved in this, green energy production being the main one. But that policy, because it wasn't going to be reached, then got kicked into the long grass and they came up with the 35% by 2030 policy. And I am concerned that, you know, at the rate we're changing now, that this policy will eventually get kicked into the long grass if we're not very careful. And where I live on the north of the island, just outside Ramsey, if sea levels rise 20 foot, as on some predictions with two degree global warming, uh, I'll be living in a one story bungalow instead of a two story house and I'll need a boat to get home instead of a car. So I have got quite a bit of uh, necessity for these things to move on. So, so what you have sort of indicated is that you will have more time in six months' time. Um, so you wouldn't you wouldn't think of the keys at at, at some future point then. Uh, it's it's definitely Legco for you. I I would see that as my yeah as an introduction and then see how he, how he goes. But as as I've said, I'm 64 years old, so I I don't need another job as such. Um, but I am very interested in putting back into the island. And, yeah, hard-nosed businessman a lot of the time, but also a compassion side to that. Um, I instigated the uh, Farmers' Union charity sale for Ukrainian refugees last year that raised £13,000. And we do... Don't want to shout too loudly, else we'll be full of TT Marshalls. But we do half price for TT Marshalls on the campsite for the TT and the Manx Grand Prix, and put we've sponsored a sidecar unit as well. So it's putting back into the system um, and contributing because it's very easy to take um, and putting back in get a lot of satisfaction from as well. There's a lot of people say that you need to have experience of the law to be able to properly do the role of legislative counsel. Um, how would you respond to, to that? Yeah. Um, yes, the legislative counsel most definitely needs people with law experience on it, but it doesn't need everybody on the legislative council to have law experience. And it also needs people with corporate experience in Douglas, because that's very important to the island, and it probably needs representation from people who have worked in the civil service and other areas. But what it doesn't need, what it does need to be is widespread and all sectors represented. And I think I come from a different background and a different career path and a different representation to the other candidates that are going for the MLC in that I'm small business and business startup and business expansion 
and then I've got the tourism and the hospitality and etc tagged on as well so at the start of this process um, the president of Tim Wald um, I think it was on a radio interview it might have been just a news clip was saying you know we need a broad range of broad church and I thought, yeah yes you're right we do and that's started me to come forward then and yeah really think about it and what I could deliver and yeah if the MHKs believe in that and and think that's right for the island well I am the one with the the point of difference if you like so assuming then that uh, you you were successful at this uh, legislative council election uh, what would you say if um, the chief minister rang you up one evening and said there's a vacancy in the Department of Environment, Food and Agriculture. Uh, will you go there? Yeah. Um, it all comes to this question of the role of MLC, and it, it's multi-layered, and it seems to contradict itself, um, because the first and foremost job is scrutinising legislation, understanding the policy and what that's trying to deliver and getting the legislation to match. And then where I I would come in and uh, be a benefit is getting that legislation right so it works out there on the coalface, if you like, in the industry and works for the small businesses. Because I don't know whether you noticed yesterday, the UK just announced their tax receipts had been a lot higher than uh, they were planning. And they put that down to the success of the self-employed sector. So there is a big value there to be tapped into um but then on the so you're scrutinizing keys legislation or keys business if you like and so you don't want to be part of that to keep a clear blue line there but then once a month you become part of tim world and all of a sudden you become a political animal then and and then you can go on further with committees and membership of departments, etc. I don't. I would have difficulty in getting involved in policy formation because I'm not accountable to the voting public. But any experience I can add, or you know, relevant details etc on how things would work or knowledge yeah um yeah i'd be fully committed to this job at whatever level i would look to get involved but have a line in the sand on making policy in tim Wald, i can question policy vote on policy but making it you've got to be accountable to the general public to make policy, I think. And there the seems to be a trend, certainly in, in some quarters, for LegCo members to represent the area that they come from. Um, do, do you think that's a, a, a good thing or a bad thing? I don't, I've, put, I've put some thought into this, and I'm not really, to be honest, come to a conclusion, because as, as a voter, I've never had a problem with... LegCo, um, MHKs of electing the LegCo members. Um, that that was the process, and I I never really, to be honest, questioned it. 
But when people start questioning it, yeah, I then come up with, well, are you just going to have 32 MHKs then? You know, where, where's the difference as such? Uh, you're also saying slightly that the MHKs aren't capable of electing suitable LegCo members, whereas probably they're, they're in a better position being on the inside of the machine than on the outside. Um, but then, yeah, as you come back again to accountability, there's the, the public vote is accountability. So I'm, I'm relaxed with it as it is, but I'm not per se against any review or suggestions coming forward as to what might change. So you're not specifically looking for a directly elected legislative council? I personally not, but if somebody comes forward with uh, a workable idea, I would certainly look at this, and if suitable, I, I would back it. Yeah. And and in in terms of the the the, the question uh, about if you were elected as a, a member of the legislative council, um, would you uh, be? there and available for people who live in your area to contact you or, I, or are you there to represent the whole of the island I'd, I'd be there for anybody in the whole of the island to contact me um one would assume when you're out and about you know in ramsey there would be a bias towards that area and the people you meet and the comments you take but yeah, my, my phone, email or whatever would be open to anybody, anywhere. It, it's about the whole island. It's, it's not about certain trying to pitch north against south, if you like. It's, uh, it's the whole island's got to go forwards. And, I mean, it's very clear from what you've said at the, at, at the beginning that uh, you have a, a great passion for making successful businesses. Um, but do you have a, a, a any particular political uh, passions uh, outside of what directly crops up in relation to your businesses? Uh, what 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 makes you tick politically? I suppose is the question. I'm concerned, and it was highlighted in the in the, in the budget. I'm concerned about uh, the slight direction the island's taking and the way it's getting through the reserves at the moment. Um, I think it is right to support the budget because we have just come through some horrendous times with COVID, Brexit, gas prices, etc. And a little bit of stability won't be a bad thing. But and the tre Treasury Minister has said that next year's budget is going to have a different look to it. Well, yes, it, it's, it's going to have to. We can't keep burning through reserves. And... And coming from the business background, when you're in a situation like that, you've got one of two options, basically. One is cut costs, and the other is increased revenue. And cutting costs, yeah, best practice, efficiencies, etc. They have come up before. They have been, you know, departments have been tasked with cutting costs. And it is... And it is very, very difficult to cut costs because even with the budget we had on Tuesday, um, we still need more doctors, more nurses, more teachers, better schools, better highways, better social services. They all come with a cost all the time. So turning to the, to the other side on increasing revenue, there's 
the increase in the Manx population and get working population by 5,000. And yes, that's one way to get more tax revenue in. Um, it's probably fraught with a few problems of where they're going to live and places like that. But but there's a couple of big ones that probably ought to get ought to be moved on now. And although I've said everything about green energy and want the island to get there as fast as it can to carbon neutral, the gas one could be a money earner for the island, a revenue earner, and letting out renting out the seabeds for green windmill offshore wind power it is another revenue earner that needs to be looked at so some of these have got to be seriously seriously looked at we can't keep spending money without getting more revenue in we've heard from brian brumby in the first half of the program next up gary cluett gary Tell us a bit about your background and motivation for standing for the Legislative Council. Mm, Phil, nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, I'm a relatively uh, new resident of the island. We arrived here about uh, just over four years ago, I guess, um, ostensibly to retire. Um, my background is, at least on the business side, uh, pretty much 50 years of uh, starting and running technology-based companies, um, which has given me a in multiple countries on multiple continents, which has given me a sort of fairly extensive background in management, strategic um, analysis of things, uh, working in different cultures, um, different legal systems, um, different political systems. And uh, I started out uh, initially as um, an electronics engineer. Um, my, my father was an electrical engineer, and uh, I started dabbling with electronics and electrical things when I was a, a kid still. Um, and I was in, into music in those days, and I built all my own amplifiers and sound systems and then found that to be a my hobby became a business because I started making um, sound systems for other people I soon once once you had a manufacturing process going I got somewhat bored and at that time it was about 1974 I guess it was um, was really the the start of the microprocessor generation we Intel released the early um, processes at a reasonable cost and uh, I designed um, a computer system to use in an industrial plant um, the hardware and built it and then realized well I needed someone to program this in those days there was no such thing as a computer science degree there was you, you couldn't go to, to anywhere to learn programming so essentially I taught myself to program and then you know, to, to to make the thing do something and then also into networking to make them communicate with with other things and ever since then for the last 50 years that's 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 been the business that uh, i have been in i've always i've had you know, numerous companies um i've lived in a number of countries um and the longest i've spent almost half my life in the united states mostly in silicon valley um 
for obvious reasons. And the, I guess, I've always, you know, the story I like to tell is, my view of a large company was, I wanted to have companies where I knew the names of all my employees, their, their partners, and their children. And when I couldn't do that, the company, that was it, I stopped expanding. Um, and back then, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that said my, my companies were limited to about 250 employees. It's a lot less than that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's things. But as a small company, um, the software that we generate, I managed to um, sign a fairly unique agreement with IBM back in 1994, um, so basically almost 30 years ago. Um, you know, IBM at that time was the biggest computer company in the world. Um, it's still pretty large. And I've ma managed to navigate and work through that contract all this time. But given the software and the relationship with IBM, all of our customers ended up being some of the largest, corp in fact, a couple of the largest corporations in the world. Um, and big governments, you know, defense contractors or def de de um, military organizations themselves, as well as um, you know, other, other government departments and things. Um, and one of the problems I've always had as a very small company in dealing with these very, very large companies, you start off at a massive disadvantage um, because you're either work well, you're obviously working to a legal contract, and in a lot of cases, you're working to actually specifications, technical specifications, business requirements, and things like that. And you very quickly learn your survival depends upon your ability to scrutinize legal agreements. Um, and it's not so much what's there in many cases, it's what's not there, what they don't put you in, um, what they don't put in, or, as I say, the, the, the innocuous phrase or a couple of words that gets added to, a, to, a, to, a, to a, a, a sentence that sound fine, but if, the, if it hits the fan, you're gonna, they're going to crucify you. And that was always the thing. Every major contract I signed was essentially betting the farm on it. Um, if if it went wrong, I was out of business. There was because you know, I just couldn't take them on in in courts of law. So I think I got a very good background and understanding of legal agreements. And essentially, legislation is another legal is is another form of legal agreement. So that's kind of where I've got to you know in in business. Um, I've always been interested in politics from a very young age. Um, and more about the the impact of government and governance on people, and 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 what that interaction uh, is. So, uh, I finished school in South Africa, um, and went to university there for one year. Um, but I had, for the first time in my life, when I was I don't know fifteen or so, I came face to face with abject poverty um, and people that had that would in a way I, I guess they were just hopeless they, they, they had little hope 
And the problem was they had no legal recourse to do anything about their lot. They just had to accept it. And to me, that was just unacceptable. So basically, in the, the early 70s, I became involved in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. It got me into a, an awful lot of trouble. <laughs> um, and or, you know, working with on international boycotts of the country, especially the sports teams and things. Um, it, things. It, the upshot of it was I was essentially forced to flee the country with my family. The thing that changed for me everything, uh, that changed politically for me, because I was a, I was, I was a firebrand back there. I would, I, I had no fear. I, I believed what I was doing uh, was was on the rights would be on the right side of history. Um, but in December 1975, uh, my daughter was born. And I remember sitting in the waiting room in the hospital when I heard the first cry. And it was like, it struck me within, I don't know, 30 seconds. It's like, your life's changed, mate. Um, it was suddenly the people I was fighting, that, 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 I, that I was fighting against had leverage against me. And I, I realized that. And to some extent, that changed my whole, my whole, it was, it was, very, very sudden, going from <laughs> firebrand to, oh, um, you know, because when, you, when you're too outspoken and things, essentially you, you end up making a lot of enemies. Um, and, you know, I decided there, there's probably a better way. So, you know, I started to engage with them. And I think that's part, very important in politics, um, is that you have to engage with people. You have to engage with people that you fundamentally disagree with because ultimately uh, politics is all about compromise and negotiation. Um, you know, the, you, I don't think you can be successful if you're, unless, unless, unless you are in a dictatorship where you can kind of do whatever, whatever you please. Um, and so, you know, I got... I had a change of attitude to, to my thing is, well, maybe we need to work together. I can't afford to be, I've got, you know, this, I, I can't afford to do what I was, what, what I was doing any longer. But anyway, eventually left South Africa. I had to leave. Um, and I was invited to go to Sri Lanka by um, President Bandaranaika uh, at the time. Um, she was in the non-aligned states, and she was very vocal of, about the apartheid system in South Africa and things. She invited me there uh, to Sri Lanka, so we went to Sri Lanka, um, and it was very interesting because she'd asked me to to help develop a business plan um, for well, there's a proposal for a to the British government for a technology transfer where they could get computer systems funded and things for for the government. And so I did that, but we got to, to talking a lot. And, uh, you know, she explained to me, I mean, I had certain views on things. She explained to me the whole thing about Sinhalese nationalism. I understand the rise of the Tamils in, 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 in Sri Lanka and trouble. Anyway, it was only a few months later that uh, she basically w went out of power. She lost the election. Um, and uh, she was essentially deposed and I left, and at that time I was given a permanent residence visa to go to Australia, um, and went there. But 
a year or two, and I was I was still running in technology. I was mostly doing um, consulting at that at that point, um, and I uh, let's see. Oh, and then in, I think it was about nineteen seventy seven seventy nine somewhere around there. Um, I got a message from uh, Michael Samari, President uh, Prime Minister Samari, who was the um, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea. Uh, contacted me to ask me if I would go to Port Moresby to go and do the same thing I'd done for Sri Lanka, um, which was write a technology proposal, which I agreed to. And you know, it, it was a referral from from uh, Mrs. Bandaranaika. Uh, I went there and I was there for a couple of months um, and working on that. Again, I got to know him quite well uh, and he basically educated me in a completely different form of democracy and how it worked there and the election strategies that were used and things. But about three months in, four months in, he lost a vote of confidence in Parliament and his deputy, uh, Julius Chan, took over, um, who decided to keep me on and we also became quite friendly on the things. And the, the reality was in public, those two were at loggerheads all the time. They were opposition parties and they, you know, the things. But behind the scenes, we used to go, we used to go tuna fishing on the weekends and things like that. Um, but it gave me a, 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 a very broad insight to different political systems. The thing I remember about uh, Samari losing the vote of confidence, uh, no, con you know, losing the vote of confidence and, uh, uh, Julius Chan taking over was I remember there was speculation in the Australian press that there would almost be a civil war because uh, Samari was the first uh, prime minister of independence and he'd suddenly just lost uh, and been turfed out and it turns out and it was educational on it was the more um, an emerging democracy in one of the most primitive countries on the planet and it was it was wonderful to see how the model of transition um, that took there was a peaceful transition and then a year or two later um samari won the next election and was back and it was it's it, it it was a perfectly peaceful thing anyway and then i went to the united states i went back to australia for a couple of years then i went to the, i went to the united states um to work and politically i you know lived in arizona initially got involved in a, in in recalling the governor of california uh, the governor of arizona who was Never mind. Um, but anyway, we did that successfully. Eventually, I moved to California into Silicon Valley in, in, in the San Francisco area and uh, politically got involved there in a, um, a proposition to legalize the use of stem cells in research, which is a very controversial thing back in those days. And that, that was successful. I joined the Democratic Party in uh, 1996, I guess it was, when Bill Clinton got elected. Uh, and was a member all the way until 2000, I guess, in 16. So I was, I worked on the Obama campaign. I was a, a major donor to, to Obama's election. I was invited to his inauguration. Um, and so I've, I've always been in, in, interested in politics. When I came here, um, the, the thing that, that struck my wife and I is we're going to, we want to live here for the rest of our days. And there are some issues on the island. And one of the issues that became apparent, because it underpins all the other, a lot of the other problems, is housing. Um, you know, we houses are expensive, and there's not enough of them 
in the price ranges that people can afford. And I'm not talking about people like myself who, you know, doing have done very well. Thank you very much. Um, but for the for for average people, for workers, it's 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 a huge challenge. But I didn't understand. I mean, when, you know, when I came here, it was, and some of the people I knew, it was the view was, oh, there's no such thing as homelessness on the island. There's none of this stuff. There, you know, it's, and then I decided to, well, what's the problem? I mean, I'm an engineer. What is the problem with housing? Is there what are the alternatives? How can we fix it? What are the things we can do? Um, beside, you know, forget about the political aspect of it. Just practically, what what are the challenges and things? So. I want to talk to people about the problems, the specific problems they were facing and, you know, things. So, you know, we're better to hang out, to find people that are living in social housing, in assisted housing, have and things like that, is I started going to Labour, Manx Labour Party meetings where I met a lot of very interesting people, people who are living the issue. Um, and gradually came to the realization that you know we have a we have more than just a the affordability issue um there's there's the issue with you know social housing assisted housing uh every form of housing that you can think of we do have a homelessness problem we have a couch surface problem we have all sorts of problems and what can we do about it and so mostly what i've been engaged at for the last two and a half, three years, was doing a lot of research and talking to people and then coming up with what we can do. Um, you know, I did, I, I, I was invited to join the Housing Communities Board um, sometime last year, and that's been uh, very informative and useful. And it was great because one of the things that I do like about it is that the board consists of people from all walks of life. So we've got, you know, we've got, we've got some legal people, we've got realtors, we've got people who've been working on social housing and housing issues for decades here, um, uh, as well as, um, you know, officials, uh, you know, civil servants, uh, ministers, uh, MHK. I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a melting pot and it, it, it works really well because I think it's one of the few things, housing is one of the few things on the island that it doesn't matter what your political background is, who you are, whatever, we all agree, it's a problem. Um, you know, the, 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 the devil's always in the details of how, of how you resolve that. Um, so, you know, I've done several things. I'm building my own house at the moment. Um, I knocked down a, a terraced house, a mid-terrace um, house, and we, I'm building a passive house um, in its place. Uh, and hired an architectural company and during the process met a brilliant young architect um, who was underutilized, in my opinion, uh, who was frustrated, I think, um, and essentially went into partnership with him and you know, sent him on training and he became, we are now, we started an architectural company um, that is the only certified passive house design company on the island. Um, and then on the housing thing, I had tried to talk to several comp builders and things like that about building affordable housing, very highly energy efficient, things like that. And it was really difficult, it, it, simply because they're too busy. They don't have the time to, to look at these things. And it's like, why spend money on upskilling and investments when we've got more work than we know what to do with? Long shot of it is, was about six months ago, I decided to start a development company to build affordable houses um, and you know we've got this is my project which we're using the company on to 
trained some people, uh, and then we've bought some land up in, uh, well, we bought a brownfield site up in Ramsey. That will be the next project where we want to build a co-housing development um, and get it as affordable as profit I, as possible. I, you know, my wife and I are doing this on a non-profit basis. I, I don't want, you know, it's, it's, it's not a business for me. It's something that I think we need and various other things. So that's probably too long, but that's sort of a nutshell of my journey to, to where I am. Yes, a, a very big nut, it's fair to say, in terms of the <laughs> nutshell. Um, it, it, in, in terms of LegCo, I mean, what, what's, um, what, what skills do you think you actually need to be a member of the Legislative Council? Well, firstly, I think LegCo needs a variety of, 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 of talent, skills, backgrounds, perspectives. I mean, you, 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 know, you, you, don't, you don't want everybody to be, to be the same, to think the same. Um, and yes, a lot of it's a scrutiny. So you want people who are, who are adept at critical thinking. You want people who, I think, you are skeptics, <laughs> um, who are willing to stand up and be counted, who, willing, who are willing to uh, express their views when they think something's wrong. But again, it's, I don't think it's, it's to be confront, it's not to be confrontational things like it. I see MLCs as being there as kind of a backstop to the MHKs and government and potentially departments that if you've got skills that they need, that they should be available for their, for, for them to use. So you would, you would go into a department if asked? It would depend. I, on, on several things. One is, I think the MLC needs to be, if, you, if you're going to fulfill your scrutiny role, you can't get too close to any department or to, to anything, because that, I think, starts to compromise you. Um, and you need to, you know, you say, you need to be able to speak out. So I, I, you know, I think, at least for myself personally, in terms of the skills that I bring, uh, which are very broad based, um, based on a lot of experience in a lot of different areas, um, you know, I'd certainly be willing to work in departments and potentially multiple departments because a lot of legislation we introduce, uh, a lot of policies affect multiple departments. And you know, I think one of the one of the challenges of all or big organisations, whether it's government or private, is siloing. I mean, people get in, you know departments do their own thing and don't talk to anybody else. Um, the other thing is, I think, where it's important to work inside departments is when you're bringing through legislation and that, you know, rather than have the department go off and do its own thing um, and draft legislation and then send it to Keys and eventually it gets to LegCo and that's the first time you've seen it and you tear it to shreds. Well, you've probably just lost six months. Um, you know, it's far more efficient if, you know, as a member of LegCo that you can help smooth the process and things so if you're going to be looking at alternatives and finding faults and things the earlier you do it in the process the better um and so again in life you never say never and in politics you even less slightly should be saying never you know never um i i think there's a role for for mlcs and departments um i don't see myself at this at this stage taking on a you know a full-time role in a department with you know voting on policy and things like that i don't think that's i don't think that's why we we're there um but you know having said that um there's not a lot of unanimity amongst the mhks about what the an M a, a, a an mlc should be doing and, and where they should be doing it so it is 
it is a challenge. Um, but, you know, ultimately we have, and I know there's, 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 there's questions raised about how many MLCs should we have um, and uh, things. The reality we have on the island, we have a small population. Okay, We only, we only have, well, some people say it's a lot, but relatively a few people in, you know, in, in, in Parliament, um, if you look at the, across Tinwald and things like that. But outside of um, foreign affairs and defense, we have all the same functions of state that huge, huge countries have. Um, and we don't have, we don't have the people. So to some extent, again, going back to taking roles in departments and things like that, I am, and the way I've always run my businesses, it's like, it's whatever it takes, right? You can't, we don't have the luxury of, of saying, absolutely, I'm not going to touch this or all or, or that because it's like, oh, well, it's not my role. Um, yeah, we, we have a challenge. And I think ultimately you need to be willing to take on whatever is needed to, to help in that thing. If, yeah, I'm, if, if I'm elected to the position, my view is I'm there for to be used and utilized as best as I as I possibly can, and to some extent, that's up to government, the MHKs, the you know the government, the ministers, the departments, and things like that. So you know, I'm willing willing to help out where I can. That was another of the Ledge co-candidates, Gary Cluett. We've now heard from eight candidates, but there are still three more to try and fit in before the election in mid March. Manx Radio is recording the Liberal Van and Ledgeco hustings tomorrow and we hope to bring that to you next Sunday. Let me know your thoughts on the programme by contacting philgorn at manxradio.com and get in touch if you have any ideas for future shows. Don't forget this programme is available as a podcast on Manx Radio's website. For now though, I'm Phil Gorn, Goromayo, thanks for listening. <laughs>